0: Welcome to Animals Today, your home for a serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Peter Spiegel. At Arizona State University, there is a lab operating under the leadership of Professor Clive Wynn. It's dedicated to improving the lives of dogs and their people. Wynn is professor of psychology and heads the Canine Science Collaboratory. Its areas of research include dog welfare at the animal shelter, behavioral problems in the home, human-dog interaction, dogs' wild relatives, and the effects of aging on dog cognition. You know, it's been a few years since we have spoken with Dr. Nguyen, and he returns now to share some of the latest work his group and colleagues are up to. Welcome, Clive.
1: Thank you, Peter. It's great to be with you again.
0: Let's uh, talk about visual identification of dogs at shelters. What is it, and why is it done?
1: Sure. Well, so most shelters nowadays still, uh, when they get a dog in, they ask for the people what kind of a dog is this or if the person doesn't know or if the dog doesn't have a person who can answer they they take a look at the dog for themselves and they make some kind of a guess as to what kind of a breed of dog they're looking at and usually it's obviously not a purebred dog Uh, so they usually guess that it's a mix of two different breeds and this is very common practice thousands millions of dogs each year are identified in this way but um my collaborator Lisa Gunter, who, unlike me, had actually worked in shelters, she had her suspicions that this really wasn't a very reliable way of going about things. And uh, we were able to, with the, from the generosity of Mars Veterinary Science, they donated nearly a thousand of their Wisdom Panel tests, and so we were able to um, to to do the DNA test that tells you your dog's true heritage and compare it to these assessments that are made in the shelter on on nearly a thousand dogs in here in Phoenix and also in a major shelter in San Diego in California.
0: Okay, very interesting. We're going to get into some of those details you just laid out there. Uh, Typically these days, absent genetic testing, how is that visual information used and what are the problems in uh, using it? And uh, you said that people are guessing these are, they must be trained somehow. Are they experts?
1: Well, so I've asked around as to how do people acquire this knowledge, and as far as I know, they just look at the big book of dog breeds that comes from the AKC, the American Kennel Club, and they try and remember what dogs of different breeds are supposed to look like, and then when they see a mutt, a mixed breed dog, they say, well, you know, it's got a chow-chow tail and collie ears, so it must be a chow-chow collie mix. They're just looking at the features that they can see on the outside of the dog and using those, maybe they look at the behavior as well. As far as I've ever been able to find out, nobody's ever really attempted to have anything very systematic about how they do it. And then once that determination is made, that goes into the shelter's internal records. And it usually goes onto the cage card, so that it's one of the few pieces of information that's on the, the kennel when a visitor comes and looks at a dog and sees a cage card, and it says, you know, hi, I'm Rex, I'm a Border Collie Chow Chow cross, and uh, and and yeah. So uh, the, we have evidence from uh, from Lisa Gunter's studies, but also from studies that Sasha Protopopova carried out when she was my student way back when that these breed labels actually have an enormous influence on potential adopters' decisions. And uh, one of Lisa's studies indicated that people pay more attention to the breed label than they do to what the dog actually does while they're they're looking at it. It kind of overpowers people's direct perception of the animal in front of them.
0: Really interesting. And so consequently, I would presume we're seeing shelters using those cards and those labels less frequently or is it still a very common practice?
1: I believe it's still a very common practice. I mean, the outcome of Lisa's study when she compared the breed identifications carried out by shelter staff to the DNA identification of the of the genes of different breeds that the dogs are actually carrying, her finding was that these these assessments are, are pitifully inaccurate yeah. so that uh, pretty much the... Only dogs that shelters get right are the handful of pure breeds that they have, and they have fewer pure breeds than they think they do. A lot of shelters uh, report that they have more than 20% pure breeds, whereas we found that they only have 2 or 3%, And and they do tend to get those right. They do tend to get those pure breeds right. But part of the problem is the dog, well, there are a couple of problems. One is that dogs are genetically much more complex, shelter dogs, are genetically much more complex than people give them credit for. So the database system invites the user to enter two breed names, like a Border Collie, Chow Chow, Cross. But in reality, the average shelter dog at these two shelters, looking at nearly 1,000 dogs, the average shelter dog has three breeds in it. And some of the dogs have up to five different breeds in them, and that's before you even allow for the fact that plenty of the dogs, including my own sweet Cephos, are are to a majority no breed at all because it's not the case. People seem to think that somewhere in the distant past there were just pure dogs and that those pure dogs belonged to certain breeds and that somehow through illegitimate matings, these pure breeds got mixed, and that's what creates mutts. Now, it is true that one way to create a mutt is to take two purebred dogs of different breeds and mate them together, and you produce a cross, chow-chow border collie. But the other thing is that the majority of the world's dogs, if we look on on the scale of the whole world where there might be as many as a billion dogs, the majority of the world's dogs have never been purebred dogs. Purebred dogs were invented in the late 19th century. They're much newer than people imagine. And the majority of the world's dogs never got captured into that intense process of inbreeding that created purebred dogs. And so there are any number of dogs around us who are descended from dogs who have never been purebreds. So that, um, that perception that a mutt is an illegitimate crossing of pure strains is not always right. So anyway, you have, you have these dogs in shelters, and they're rich mixtures, and then the problem is that genetics is not paint colors. Now, if you go to the paint store and you want a particular shade of orange, you tell the, the assistant at the paint store what exact shade you want, And he or she gets some, you know, let's keep it simple, gets some drops of red and some drops of yellow and produces the shade of orange that you're asking for. And there are people who think that that's how dogs are, that you have the pure essences and you can tell. When you look at an orange, if somebody comes in with some orange paint, you can say, yeah, that must have been some drops of red and some drops of yellow. But I'm sorry, genetics just doesn't work like that. Genetics is vastly more complex than that. And so you simply cannot look at a dog that's a hybrid, that's a mixture of pure breeds, and by looking at it determine what breeds went into it. And if if we were doing this with visual aids, I could show you pictures and people look at these pictures and they say, Well that must be that must be a box of chow chow mix and and they're completely wrong because genetics just doesn't work like that. Very quickly, when you cross purebred dogs, you lose the exceptional features—the smushed in face of the pug, the, the curly, tightly curved tail of the Chow Chow. Those features tend to be due to recessive genes, and they disappear extremely quickly once you cross with individuals who don't have such preponderance of those particular genes. And so, very quickly, when you mix purebred dogs, you get dogs that look much more—you could say—ordinary. They tend to be medium-sized, medium length hair, they tend to have somewhat curly, but not super curly tails, and so on. So you just cannot look at individuals and deduce by their appearance who their parents had to have been. Have you
0: presented some of these findings to shelter workers, and are they surprised to learn how bad they are at determining?
1: uh... Well, right. So people are surprised that the process of guessing about mixed breed dogs is so unreliable. And I'm kind of surprised that they're surprised because it's actually been in the scientific literature for 70 years, where in the 1950s, uh, Scott and Fuller, in their famous work on behavior and genetics, they crossed some breeds of dogs. And there are pictures in there of what the crossed purebreds look like. And so, so it's been in the scientific literature for 70 years. And really, any time there was a kennel that was breeding more than one purebred dog and they got some kind of Romeo and Juliet situation where a dog escapes from one set of kennels and mated with a female in the other set of kennels, they would have had offspring and they would have known what those looked like. So it's kind of it's kind of like a secret that's been hiding in plain sight, and I don't I, I don't understand why you know even veterinarians seem to believe that they can guess what uh, purebreds went into a mixed breed dog, and they really ought to know better. I don't understand. So yeah, so the the short answer is yes, people are surprised when we tell them this, but some shelters now are removing the the breed labels from their cage cards. And, uh, and that actually seems to, at least in the big shelter in Orlando, Florida that we studied, it, um, it had very positive benefits for the dogs.
0: Uh, meaning that uh, the adoption rate went up?
1: Yeah. Well, the adoption rate went up, and it, it went up not just for dogs that would have received unattractive labels, of which the obvious case is the pit bull, right? People don't like the sound of that. Now, pit bull is not even a breed of dog, but nonetheless, it gets used as, as if it's a breed uh, and it gets used as a label on dogs in shelters. So we found that when they took all of the breed labels away, so that visitors to the shelter were given no information about what breeds the dogs might be, we found that there was a massive increase in the adoption of the dogs that would have been labeled pit bulls. But interestingly, there were increases in adoption of all the dogs, including dogs that would have received the kind of breed labels that people find very attractive, like, you know, Retriever and Labrador and and labels like that.
0: We're speaking with Professor Clive Wen, probably my favorite psychologist. He's at Arizona State University. And uh, after the break, I've got a few more questions about genetic testing and dog breeds for him. Stick around. You're listening to Animals Today.
2: Each year, hundreds of racehorses get injured while racing or training. If a horse gets injured or breaks down, it's more likely than not that he or she will end up being shipped off to slaughter. Many people refer to horse racing as a sport, but really it's only betting with animals. And as the horses get less competitive, they're worth more to the owners dead than alive. They are sold off and shipped in overcrowded trucks for hours on end without water to Canada or Mexico where they are slaughtered for food. That is the fate of most racehorses in the United States. While they are alive, they are subjected to overtraining and massive amounts of drugs to mask the pain of chronic and recurrent injuries. The racing industry is cruel from top to bottom so don't support it and tell your friends and relatives not to support the industry in any way don't bet don't go to tracks and avoid parties that celebrate racing this message is brought to you by advancing the interests of animals check them out at aianimals.org that's aianimals.org
0: Welcome back. We are continuing our discussion with Professor Clive Wynn from the Canine Science Collaboratory at ASU, and we're talking about dog breeds and genetic testing. You've laid out how complicated the genetic makeup of dogs in shelters can be. I'm going to guess that using artificial intelligence to train a computer to identify what a dog is composed of is just going to be not possible. What do you think?
1: I'm going to I'm going to do I'm going to act like a politician Peter and I'm going to completely evade your question. I'm going to hit you back with an alternative question. Oh, yeah. Why do people think they need to know what breed of dog they're interacting with? Why do people care what breed of dog they're considering adopting? I just think personally, I mean, I'm not I'm not I'm not like rabidly averse to the existence of breeds of dog. You know, there are certain shapes and colors and types of fur and whatever in a dog that I find attractive and that and there are labels for that. That's fine with me. But it seems to me that when you're looking to adopt a dog, what you need to know is you, need, you have a life. I have a life. What kind of life do I lead? Where does a dog potentially fit into that life? That's what really matters. So I'm not a very sporty person. I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm a professor. I sit around at my desk a lot. I sit around reading a lot. I lounge around watching TV quite a bit. I need a dog that fits into my life. Now, the best way to find that dog that fits in my life is to go and actually interview some candidates. If I was, and I'm not, but if I was thinking of taking on a new human into my personal life, I would want to get to know that person. Wouldn't I? I wouldn't just say, well, you know, I know I've, I've had good success. My wife's Australian, right? So if we're going to run with this idea, I could say I've had good success with Australian women. I should go and find myself another Australian woman. I mean, guys might talk like that, but I hope only as a joke, right? I mean, seriously, that's not how anybody with any sense would choose a life partner from their own species. So why do we adopt that point of view when we're looking for a partner from the dog species? Surely what we need to do is to get to know some of these individuals and give them a chance to show us what kinds of lives they're suited for. Now, if I was a more sporty person, if I was a runner, a jogger, I ought to be looking for a dog who likes to run, who likes to do that kind of thing with me. Now, okay, some breeds are more inclined towards that than others. But at the end of the day, there's a lot of variation within breeds as well as between breeds. And so I think people ought to give themselves the chance to get to know dogs as individuals. Research that Sasha Protopopova did with me, uh, it stunned me because as I say, I've never worked in a shelter. So I was really surprised that when people are looking for a dog at the shelter, Sasha followed them around, (laughs) people looking for a dog at a shelter, she followed them around. And she found that People don't usually look at the dogs in the kennels for more than one minute per dog. But then at this particular shelter, you were allowed to look at the dogs in the kennel. And then if you saw one you liked, you could go to the staff and you could say, may I take this dog out into this play area and interact with this dog? Most people would only ask to interview one dog and they would then play with that one dog. For on average just eight minutes mm. and then they would either go home with that dog or they would go home with no dog. Now that amazes me because here's a, here's a change you're planning to make in your life which could have ramifications for years to come, you know, with a bit of luck for 15 years to come you're going to be living with that dog and how that dog behaves around you is going to impact your life in many ways for a long time. Now people make that decision by interviewing one candidate for eight minutes. I mean, that's just astonishing to me. People need to give themselves a chance to get to know the individual that they're considering taking into their life. And yeah, OK, so certain breeds are more attractive to you than others. Uh, but that shouldn't mean that you think it's not, you know, when you when you acquire a, a golden retriever, It's not like buying a Honda Accord. Golden Retrievers are not made in some factory with some kind of quality control, so that really one of them is very, very much the same as the next. Golden Retrievers have a certain personality profile, but there's still a lot of variation from individual to individual.
0: Okay, a different topic here. Wondering your opinion on breed-specific prohibitions that uh, communities and cities enact. How can they justify enacting a regulation, aimed at a particular breed, like pit bull, quote-unquote, without genetic testing of each individual dog in question?
1: Well, there are two parts to that question. One is that without genetic testing... Well, we've already said that pit bull is not even a breed of dog. It's a group of dogs, you know, American Staffordshire Terrier. There's a bunch of dogs that get tarred with that brush. Without doing DNA testing, you don't know whether your dog contains any of the genetics that uh, that come from those breeds that people call pitbulls. And even with the genetic testing, you have no way of knowing anything interesting about the behavior of that particular individual. I mean in our own species we've moved we've long since moved on from categorizing people into broad groups that originated in different parts of the world. We understand now that people have individual personalities and and uh and and that kind of racist thinking is is not acceptable at least not amongst not amongst educated people and and it's time we made the same step with our dogs i mean dogs are purebred dogs are more homogenous than any race of people and they do have certain characteristic behaviors you know if you're going to herd sheep you better you'd better get a sheep herding breed of dog um uh, there are a few of these kind of things. If you go hunting and you need a pointer, you're going to have to get a pointer. I mean, they do have a characteristic behavior. But for most of the patterns of behavior that matter to a modern pet-owning person, somebody who has, you know, a, a profession that doesn't involve actually working with dogs, uh, they're better off getting to know the individual because... Individual differences in these things, in levels of aggression, in levels of affection, they're, they're bigger than the differences between the breeds. So breed-specific legislation, well, you know, it's barking up the wrong tree. It's altogether m- missing what needs to be attended to. The best predictor of whether a dog is going to be aggressive is whether it's been aggressive in the past, not the race of its ancestors.
0: Very good information, We've been speaking with Professor Clive Wynne. What's the website where people can learn more about your work?
1: clivewynne.com C-L-I-V-E-W-Y-N-N-E.com.
0: Clive, thank you very much. Thank you, Peter. More with Animals Today after this break.
2: Hey, this is Dr. Lori Kirschner from Animals Today. Here's a question for you. What do game show host Bob Barker, actress Tippi Hedren, journalist and author Jane Velez-Mitchell, and rock legend Paul Rogers all have in common? That's right. Each one has been a guest on Animals Today. In fact, people from all walks of life, like scientists, lawyers, dog and cat rescuers, and whale protectors, have shared their views and described their work on behalf of animals on the show. So keep up on the latest and most important animal news and issues from around the world each week right here. Make sure to join the discussion on Facebook and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. And of course, I welcome your ideas and suggestions. So feel free to contact me at Dr. Lori. that's D-R-L-O-R-I, at Animalstodayradio.com. See you next time. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner, and you're listening to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm proud to say that we are now in our 11th year of continuous weekly broadcasts, bringing you animal welfare and animal rights news and stories from around the globe. Animals Today is brought to you by the Animal Welfare Organization, Advancing the Interests of Animals. Please check them out at aianimals.org and consider making a donation to help support the show. That's aianimals.org. And thank you for your interest and your support. Welcome back to the show. You probably know that in December 2018, the U.S. Congress passed and President Trump signed into law what is known as the Farm Bill. Within this bill, there are many provisions that don't really have much to do with farms, but three of the provisions contain important animal welfare elements. To review them with us, I'm very pleased to welcome back to the show attorney Mark Momjian. Mark's practice is based in Philadelphia, and he's adjunct professor at Villanova University Law School. Hey, Mark.
3: Hi, Dr. Laurie.
2: Mark, I have to thank you for bringing these parts of the Farm Bill to my attention. It's such a huge piece of legislation, and it must be very hard for anybody to be able to digest it all. But you're going to tell us about three animal welfare provisions. So let's start with the Pet and Women's Safety Act. People are abbreviating this as PAWS. Please tell us about this.
3: It's a very important piece of federal legislation, Dr. Lurie. Basically, the new law amends federal criminal laws that broaden the definition of things like stalking to include conduct that causes a person to experience fear of death or injury to his or her pet. Um, That's a very important part of the legislation. There's also Uh, part of the legislation that deals with the interstate violation of protection orders that also includes, you know, threats against a person's pet. And even more importantly, the PAWS Act signed into law on December 20th uh, directs the Department of Agriculture to award grants for shelter and housing assistance and support services for domestic violence victims with pets. And we can talk about why that legislation was necessary.
2: Right. So describe why it's important for battered or fearful or abused women to have a safe place to go where they can bring their pets with them.
3: Well, it's it's critically important because, first of all, there is a linkage between domestic violence and animal abuse. Right. And uh, yet only three percent of all the domestic violence shelters nationwide accommodate pets. And so what um, people who are in the animal welfare field and the domestic violence field have seen is that many women, many battered women, choose to stay with their abusive partner as opposed to abandoning their pet. So the PAWS Act does something very important by uh, creating more shelter and housing assistance so that domestic violence victims with pets don't have this Terrible choice between two evils: either staying with an abusive partner or abandoning a pet. And I think that that's an extremely important step in animal welfare laws and um, in just you know in the protection of domestic violence survivors.
2: You bet. So as it stands now, are there some states that are better at accepting battered women and their pets than other states? There are. I mean, I think
3: the trend has been very favorable. I think the first time I was on your program years ago, there were only a uh, scattering of states that had domestic violence bills or legislation that actually dealt with protecting pets. Today, that number is much higher. I mean, you're talking about over 30 states uh, in the country, including uh, Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico, have various protections for pets in domestic violence orders and funding for sheltering. Now, it's different because each state has its own laws. And in my native uh, Pennsylvania, we do have something that deals with pets but it doesn't offer protection for the pets. It only uh, allows the judge in a domestic violence application to consider whether the defendant has harmed a pet in allowing the state to take away firearms. So that's actually not a very comprehensive protection for pets. There are states that have much broader protections. So it's really across the board what does is really encourage states to include their domestic violence protection orders, protection against violence or threats against a victim's pet.
2: What do you think companies like Bayer and Nestle decided to support this legislation?
3: There's lots of different reasons, whether it's sustainability practices or corporate philanthropy. One thing we're seeing is that when people talk about government, whether it's in Washington or state governments, they have very low opinions of their success or how hard they're working. Well, when it comes to animal welfare legislation, we're seeing just the opposite. Mm. We're seeing more state governments do things. You saw uh, in California with the uh, ban on pets uh, in, in That are sold in stores they, they now must come from shelters or rescue groups they can 't right. come from puppy mills in Florida. we saw the banning of greyhound racing uh, by two thousand and twenty one we 're seeing a tremendous amount of progress in animal welfare legislation and I think companies like Bear Corporation, obviously in the in the business of pharmaceuticals and treating people, look at that broad coalition uh, that supports legislation uh, that not only protects victims of domestic violence, but their pets as well.
2: Let's move on to the second provision, which is the Dog and Cat Meat Protection Act. Mark, please explain this.
3: This is a uh, kind of a surprise, but a a very good surprise that was included in last uh, December's farm bill. We don't really uh, see this as a major problem in the United States, but it can be. Only six states, Dr. Lurie, in the United States explicitly ban dog and uh, cat eating. Georgia, Hawaii, Michigan, New York, Virginia, and California. We don't have legislation across the board, uh, even though it's pretty clear that this is a problem in far eastern countries, like in China and South Korea, for instance, Vietnam, Indonesia, India, uh, where there is you know, dog and cat consumption. Uh, So because there are so many millions of these animals killed for food each year, this legislation passed by Congress outlaws that type of consumption in the United States. And while we don't have a a problem like there is in the uh, other parts of the world, I think because we are such a diverse nation with so many different cultures, I think it's important that the measure would make it a felony to knowingly slaughter, uh, buy or sell a dog or cat for consumption. Even though the problem may not be as acute in the United States as it is elsewhere, I think it's a very, very important uh, piece of uh, legislation that's now become law.
2: And finally, we have the Parity in Animal Cruelty Enforcement Act. Mark, so this deals with animal fighting like dog fighting and cock fighting. What federal laws addresses animal fighting and how does this law build upon them?
3: There's been a federal ban on animal fighting um, in the past, and, and this latest farm bill strengthens that legislation, but it also does something else that's very important. What it does is it extends American law to U.S. territories. And believe it or not, it had not been extended to places like Puerto Rico, Guam, the U.S. Virgin Islands. In Puerto Rico, for instance, there are uh, more instances of dog fighting and things like that. And I think this is part of the Humane Society uh, and other organizations to try to make uh, these laws affect all of the United States and its territories. So this is an important piece of legislation. Uh, you know, like I said, dog fighting was a felony in Puerto Rico. Uh, now, and it's it's a and in Guam and in the U.S. Virgin Islands, and it's something that uh, the Congress passed with bipartisan support. Again, showing that these types of laws are being passed by both Democrats and Republicans by large majorities.
2: Any final thoughts, Mark?
3: Well, I'm I'm seeing some very positive trends, and I think most um, followers of animal law are looking to see whether the U.S. Supreme Court is going to get involved in cases that affect state animal law. And um, recently, 15 states tried to strike down laws in California and Massachusetts that required larger living areas for some farm animals and the U.S. Supreme Court declined to get involved in that legal dispute. Hmm. So one of the things that we want to track is not only the successes of federal legislation and state legislation, we want to see whether the highest court in the United States, the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, is going to take some of these cases, and um, people are really going to track that.
2: Attorney Mark Momjian, thank you very much.
3: Always, Dr. Lori, thank you.
2: Dr. Lori Kirshner, and your Animals Today Minute for today is about leeches. Over the millennia, leeches have been used to treat various human maladies. Yes, leeches. These lowly, worm-like bloodsuckers were depicted being used as far back as in Egyptian hieroglyphics. Hippocrates used leeches, but bloodletting by means of leech was really popularized by Galen and was widely used in ancient Rome. This was a time when illness was thought to be from an imbalance of the four humors, blood, phlegm, black bile, and yellow bile, and typically too much blood was implicated. Leeches were perfect for bloodletting and rebalancing those humors. Even through the 1800s, leeches were used for bloodletting in Western medicine. But in modern times, leeches do have a genuine medical use, and in 2004, the use of medicinal leeches, they're actually called Herudo Medicinalis, as a medical device, was given approval by the FDA. It turns out that they can be quite helpful in aiding the successful surgical reattachment of severed fingers. After the finger is reattached and arterial blood flow is established, the finger gets congested with blood because the veins are not re The pressure in the tissue can get so high as to cause clotting and death of the severed digit. These medicinal leeches placed on the site will latch on and suck the blood out for 40 minutes or so, acting as a temporary venous drainage system. And after they let go, the anticoagulant from their salivary glands remains effective for hours, so a bit of bleeding from the bite persists, which is a good thing. Then, after days, when enough small veins have grown in the finger, the leech treatments can stop. Interestingly, the anticoagulant is called hirudin and is used in a few medicines today due to its potency. Now, if you discover a leech or two on your skin while walking in a rainforest or swimming in a pond inhabited by them, try not to panic. First, look all over your body to know just how many you have. Then, remove them by breaking their suction with the edge of a knife or credit card or a fingernail so they fall off. But don't squeeze them or burn them. Infection is rare, but monitor the wounds closely. And that is your Animals Today Minute for today. You're listening to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. Now in its 11th year, Animals Today covers all the important animal issues you want to know about from around the world. Animals Today is a project of the nonprofit animal welfare organization advancing the interests of animals. Its mission is to improve the lives of animals and to encourage increased compassion and respect for all living beings. Check them out at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. Your donation will support the ongoing broadcast of animals today. Just visit aianimals.org and click Support Us. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, and thanks for listening. Welcome back to Animals Today. Peter.
0: Yes, Lori. Hello.
2: March 14th is Learn About Butterflies Day. Mm. We've never talked about butterflies on Animals Today. Mm. So, we're going to discuss some really cool facts about the butterfly and incorporate a quiz into these fascinating butterfly facts. Mm. Okay, so you ready? I'm ready. Butterflies, as you know, are these beautiful, brightly colored flying insects with two pairs of large wings that vary in color and pattern depending on the species. Peter, true or false? The wings are transparent.
0: That is false.
2: Wrong. (laughs) The wings are actually clear. The colors and patterns we see are made by the reflection of the tiny scales covering them.
0: It doesn't make sense, but okay.
2: Just because it doesn't make sense to you doesn't mean it's false. <laughs> I know. True or false, butterflies range in size from a tiny one-eighth of an inch to a huge, almost 12 inches. I'm
0: going to say that's true. It is true. Mm. And incredible. Yep.
2: Imagine a 12-inch Right, butterfly.
0: landing on your shoulder. Oh,
2: my God. Oh, don't. Hi. Yeah. <laughs> With the exception of a few specific species, an adult butterfly has a very short life, just three to four weeks. Peter, true or false, butterflies can fly in all temperatures.
0: In all temperatures? I'm going to say that's false.
2: It is false. Butterflies need an ideal body temperature of about 85 degrees Fahrenheit to fly. Since they're cold-blooded animals, they can't regulate their own body temperature. The surrounding air temperature has a big impact on their ability to function. Mm -hmm. So if the air temperature falls below 55 degrees Fahrenheit, butterflies are rendered immobile, unable to flee from predators or feed. When air temperatures range between 82 degrees and 100 degrees, butterflies can fly with ease. Mm. True or false? Adult butterflies feed primarily on other insects. I'm going to say it's true. That's false. Ah. Adult butterflies can only feed on liquids, usually nectar. Oh, yeah. Their mouth parts are modified to enable them to drink, but they can't chew solids. Butterflies have a long tube-like tongue called a proboscis that allows them to soak up their food. One of its first jobs as an adult butterfly is to assemble its mouth parts. You may see a newly emerged butterfly curling and uncurling the proboscis over and over, testing it out. Oh, that's neat. Isn't that cool? Yeah. True or false? Butterflies taste with this tube-like tongue, the proboscis.
0: Mmm. That sounds like false to me.
2: It is false. Butterflies taste with their feet. Oh, wow. Butterflies have taste receptors on their feet. A female butterfly lands on different plants, drumming the leaves with her feet until the plant releases its juices. Spines on the back of her legs have chemoreceptors that detect the right match of plant chemicals. When she identifies the right plant, she lays her eggs. So after mating, a female butterfly lays her eggs on a caterpillar food or, quote, host plant. Uh-huh. The eggs can hatch when the conditions are just right, and caterpillars can start eating their host plant right away. Peter, the process by which a caterpillar transforms into a butterfly is called mm what
0: that is metamorphosis yeah
2: you remember your biology metamorphosis Metamorphosis is completed in about 10 to 15 days depending on the species a group of butterflies is sometimes called what a herd a flutter Mm. a pack or a litter
0: oh i total guess flutter it's flutter yeah litter of butterflies that (laughs) would be weird
2: (laughs) i had to think of something (laughs) Peter, you and I, being ophthalmologists, we know that a normal human eye has one natural lens in it, right? Yep. Butterfly's eyes are made of how many lenses?
0: Oh, like a compound lens, maybe. I'm going to say a thousand
2: lenses. One, Mm -hmm. 10, 160, or 6,000?
0: Oh, 6,000.
2: It is 6,000 lenses. That is so cool. Yeah, 6,000 lenses and can see ultraviolet light. There are about 17,500 species of butterflies spread throughout almost the entire world. Butterflies are found on every continent.
0: Except...
2: Except...
0: Except Antarctica?
2: Yes. Okay,
0: well, it's cold there. Yeah, they Yeah, very good. Wouldn't, wouldn't work okay, out so... Okay, you're
2: a pretty smart guy. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so many species migrate to avoid adverse conditions like the cold, right? Most migrate relatively short distances, but monarchs and several other species migrate thousands of miles. With respect to the monarch butterfly, they are the only insect that migrates an average of 2,500 miles to find a warmer climate.
0: Well, that's really fascinating. You don't think of the movement of a butterfly as being so efficient that it can get you very far. It's interesting.
2: Butterfly wings move in a figure eight motion. Butterflies flap all its wings at the same time at about five beats per second. So the defense mechanisms of the butterfly, well, there are a few ways they defend themselves from predators. One method is disguise or called cryptic Coloration, where the butterfly has the ability to look like a leaf or blend into the bark of a tree to hide from predators. Mm -hmm. Another method is chemical defense, where the butterfly has evolved to have toxic chemicals in its body. These species of butterflies are often brightly colored, and predators have learned over time to associate their bright color with the bad taste of the chemicals. Well, the greatest threats to butterflies are habitat change and loss due to residential, commercial, and agricultural development. Mm -hmm. And there you go, Peter. March 14th, learn about Butterflies Day.
0: Okay. I learned about butterflies. I needed that. Thank you.
2: Okay. What do you got there?
0: Well, it's sort of uh, semi-saliva related. (laughs) It's a nice uh, story. In Santa Monica, a firefighter recently saved a dog using so-called mouth-to-snout resuscitation. This uh, this uh, Bichon mixed dog, 10 years old, was uh, found unresponsive by firefighter Andrew Klein during an apartment fire in Santa Monica. The dog was not breathing and did not have a pulse, according to the fire captain. The firefighter said, I just grabbed him. He knew he was unresponsive and decided he just need to bring him back he used mouth to snout cpr and they also gave supplemental oxygen it took 20 minutes for the dog to begin breathing on his own again and the but dog wow, ended up fine that's so great it was really a, it's a great story and Yes, it's a great story. There are some details that are not included here. For instance, whether chest compressions were given, because earlier in the story, they do say he did not have a pulse. So usually you'd want to lay the dog on the side and give chest compressions and also do the breathing. And I also read that in mouth to snout, if the dog is a larger dog, then you close the mouth and you just breathe through the nose. And in a smaller dog, you just put your mouth over the Nose and the dog's mouth, and breathe for them. Oh, very interesting. Yeah. And similar to human resuscitation, first thing you need to do is what? You need to, you know, check the pulse, check the respirations, and then see if the airway is clear. And then, if you think there's an obstruction, you do a doggy Heimlich by coming behind the dog and lifting the dog up and just, you know, doing a Heim- doggy Heimlich.
2: Yeah. You know pet owners really should refine their CPR for their animals, shouldn't they? They give courses on this. Yeah.
0: And I bet you just going online you can get a good feeling of what's going on here. Right. So, thanks to uh, Andrew Klein saving that dog, the dog guardian said, "I am just so grateful."
2: Well, thanks so much for bringing that subject up, Peter. And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals.